Hm. Please let yourself sit in a way that's at ease and comfortable. Let the last few people come in. I was just handed an announcement that says that there are a few spots left in the three-month retreat at IMS, the center we have in the East Coast. That's the retreat starts in a, about a two and a half weeks. So it says anyone who would like to leave the middle of their life and go sit in silence for three months, <laughs> there's usually long waiting lists, but they went through the waiting list, I guess. Um, you're, you're welcome to call them. So if sitting for 40 minutes was good, <laughs> maybe three months will be better. So this is a holiday weekend. Um, it's also, at least in my family, tonight is, is, is really officially the last night of summer because school starts tomorrow morning for my daughter and a lot of the people in the valley school system up here. Certainly tomorrow or the next day, depending where, or days before. Um, today is the beginning of something new. Tomorrow is. Of course, there's an old saying that says that today is the birthday of the world and every day is the birthday of the world. And today is also Labor Day. Um, and although I would rather call it Service Day than Labor Day, where people serve one another in some fashion. Um, and I'd like to speak about that tonight um, and what it means to labor or to understand labor and work in the world, and how it connects with the attention that we bring in a meditative practice, the wise attention to our own breath and body and heart and mind. Because in the Buddhist tradition, in the path of practice, the Eightfold Path, wise livelihood is considered one of the factors of enlightenment. To be awakened is to somehow sense that the work that we do is included in that which is mindful and sacred and which leads us to freedom. I begin by reading a bit of an essay since it's the beginning of the school year um, that I've read in the past, a year ago here, I think. Um, this was part of an essay that was required on the applications for college students um, they usually ask about all your school history and so forth. And then there's one little special essay that says, all right, tell us why you think we should accept you in this particular college. Um, you know, what significant experiences have you had in your life or what might you contribute to our particular university? So this essay, which was published 
some time ago, a few years ago, by a young man. Um, he responded, um, if you wish to understand me, um, I will tell you about myself. I am a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I translate ethnic slurs for Cuban refugees. I write award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. I can tread water for three days in a row. I woo women with my sensuous trombone playing. I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed, and I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. I am an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. I once single-handedly defended a small Amazon village from a horde of ferocious ants, and when I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my yard. I enjoy urban hang gliding. On Wednesdays after school, I repair electric appliances free of charge. I'm an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. I bat 400. Children trust me. Mm -hmm. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in a single day and still had time to refurbish an entire dining room that evening. I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket. I performed covert operations for the CIA. I rarely sleep. I balance and weave. I've made extraordinary four-course meals using only a toaster oven. Won bullfighting competition in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I've, I've performed Hamlet. I've played Hamlet. I've performed open-heart surgery, and I've spoken with Elvis. But I have not yet gone to college. Please consider my application. He got in. If one is to look at the cultural idea of what it means to work or to be creative, um, which this really points to in a way, is it to do all these special things in, in remarkable ways and remarkable places? Um, I think there's something more ordinary and more important to be understood if we really look in a, in a heartfelt way at what might be Labor Day for us. Because Labor Day, in a sense, is a way to celebrate the creativity, the gifts, the work, the toil, the sense of community of all those who have labored. And in a sense, wise livelihood, which begins with first do not harm others through selling weapons or or drugs or things that hurt others, and then find a way to give your gift to the world this wise livelihood, if you will, asks of us an attention to what we bring back to this earth. In certain Zen monasteries, um, it's said that a day of no work is a day of no food. So part of the Zen practice was to be in the monastery and also to serve the community, and then you'd be served back. And then the prayers that might be said, 
in such a monastery. The appreciation of how much we live on the labor of others is recited before every meal. Blessings that begin, such blessings that begin. Ninety-nine labors have brought this food. Those who tilled the soil and planted and picked and washed and prepared and the labor of the bees and the earthworms and the sun and the clouds and the air. As we let ourselves sit in meditation and still ourselves sense or listen from a deeper place of mindfulness, um, our inner sight can open, not just our eyes, but the eyes of our eyes open. And we can begin to sense quite immediately that the idea of an independent life is an optical illusion of our consciousness. And in knowing that directly, there opens a sense of connection or trust or rest because we're always held by the collective, by all the other beings. There's a famous story in India of a yogi, a kind of a, a, a sadhu, who went to his master and was given the teachings to see God in everything the word that was used, because there are many ma names for God in India, in this case it was Rama, Rama, to see God in everything. And so this yogi, this uh, um, mendicant, went off and took the teacher's words and arrived in a village where he found that people were terrified because there was a mad elephant that had periodically come crashing through the village, trampling over things so forth, and a mad elephant is quite a sight. And the yogi said, no problem. My teachers taught me, elephant is God, I am God. No problem. They said, well, don't go out in the street at noon, you know, because the elephant tends to come midday, and God or not, um, it's big, you know, <laughs> and it's dangerous, and it's mad. But these, this um, yogi said, no, no problem. I'm a yogi. Everything I see, God. They said, no, no, don't go. He said, yes, I must go. And knowing how holy men were, they kind of let him do what he was going to do, because he was going to do it anyway, of course. So he went out in the middle of the day, sat in the street, said, yes, I would see this elephant. And the elephant came down the road and saw the man sitting there and began to charge right up to him and wrapped his trunk around him and threw him into a tree, broke a couple of bones, and he fell down. He was really in um, shock from that. And the villagers, seeing this, came out with sticks and made loud noises and beat on the things that drove the mad elephant out of the village. And they picked the yogi up and nursed him back to health. And when he got better, told me, God in everything, God in the clouds, God in trees. I said, I will see God in the elephant, he will see God.
connects to our ancestors. An old notion, and perhaps one that would be worthwhile bringing back. It's traditional when one enters a temple, a Buddhist temple, to bow in Asia. And you bow three times first to the Buddha and all the Buddhas of the past and to that Buddha nature that is in all beings. So many who've come before us and been awakened and those around us who can awaken with us. And then you bow, second bow, to the Dharma, which is the Sanskrit word that means the truth or the Tao, the universal law, and those teachings that awaken us to this truth. The teachings that were taught from generation to generation to generation, and then given to us. And then bow to the Sangha, which is the word that means community or sacred community means that we cannot awaken in ourselves without touching all other beings, without being supported by other beings. I remember when we used to go out with our begging bowls at the forest monastery of my teacher, Ajahn Chah, and get whatever food would be offered in the morning. And he said, do you think people are feeding you? He said, not likely with your karma. He said, actually, you go out and what you are doing is borrowing the Buddha's good karma. They see you and they, re- they are reminded by the robes and maybe by the dignity of your walk that there was something that really awakened the world that was beautiful that they have faith in. And so having faith in that, the karma of the Buddha, they even feed you, he said. He used to like to tease his monks. As we awaken, which means as we pay attention deeply, we enter or remember a truth that is greater than this small sense of ourself. We step out of the small sense of ourself. And we take refuge in this stream of awakening that's possible for every human being and that's been going on for generations. We become a stream enterer in a certain way of that word. We enter into the world that's beyond this small sense, into the world of our ancestors that we are a part of. Now, who are your ancestors? I mean, you didn't just kind of, wasn't miraculous birth, you know, like Venus out of the sea or something like that. I mean, who are your ancestors that gave you your body and your language and your culture? There's, of course, the genetic ancestors, one's birth parents, you know, whether they're European or African or Asian or Native American or wherever you come from, and the particulars of a certain culture, Palestinian or Celtic or Italian or Persian or South African or Mayan. But that's only a little bit of our ancestors. They're important ones. You know, you're not just European or not just Asian, but you're Chinese or Indian or Celtic or, or Greek. There's this whole thing that goes back that you carry. That's one part. I remember somebody asked Ramdas, they said, are you, you know, you teach as a Hindu teacher, but aren't you really Jewish? And he said, yes, I am Jewish. He said, but I'm only Jewish on my parents' side. <laughs> So there's that part. And it's worth recognizing and acknowledging. 
But then our ancestors are also the animals, the mammals. You are a mid-sized mammal, right? Moving around on this earth. And before the mammals that were your ancestors, there are sea creatures that crawled out to become mammals. And before them, the one-celled organisms are your ancestors. No. And it's still true, your relatives are the bees and the foxes that move through this forest, and the vultures, and the earthworms, and the fish, and the badgers, the raccoons. And there are ancestors like that, that knew that of this land, that are also a part of our being here. The Miwoks, and the Pomos, and the people who walk this same land that you the discomfort that people had around it, you know. And then if you look on our money, it says, in God we trust, right? Which, you know, remember when that was put on there, that's when we went off the gold standard, right? And then, okay, in God we trust, we put on that. But there are economic ancestors, and not just the ones that made up, you know, drew the pictures on the money and made it up, but the ones who made the roads that we use every day, and the farmers who 
cleared the fields and made it possible to grow the food that we eat every day. And the herbalists that kept them alive and the, the Chinese who worked on the railroads that um, brought so many people to this part of this land, um, the European immigrants um, and the people who were um, trying to create a different culture from the native culture and unfortunately destroying the native culture at the same time. And the native people who are here who taught them a lot about the food and the animals and the way this land worked. And the inventors and the explorers and the mothers and the poets, the artists and the teachers and the healers, all of them allow you to be here. The person who invented traffic lights allow you, allows you to be here. You know, and the person who um, figured out what kind of food would grow well in this uh, state, in this soil, so that a lot of people could be fed. And the people who figured out language long ago. All of these people, how much we are held by others. How much. Every day. And people, there are all the headlines of what goes wrong in the world. Um, but there are a million acts of generosity in your week. The generosity of someone who stops at the stop sign so you can go through the intersection because they came a little after you. Tremendously generous act. You know? And the generosity of people in the stores who take only the right amount of money from you. And the generosity of... Um, <laughs> Is, I mean, the fabric of society is really one of generosity, one to another. The tragedy for some in our society is that this is breaking down, and that the sense of being held, which is the fabric of human life, and it always has been, of the village, is breaking down. So I've come last night, late, came back from a week-long retreat up in Mendocino, deep in the Redwoods, in the Mendocino Redwoods camp, um, with 75 men, the majority of whom were men of color, and quite a few of them were youth from the inner cities, from Oakland, from Los Angeles, from Chicago. Coming with their mentors, a number of these guys who'd been in gangs, um, and at some point or other wanted to step out or met someone that inspired them enough to try to look at another way. Um, and so they came with the men that had been working with them to this retreat, and it was taught by an African shaman, Maladoma Somay, and a drummer and mythologist, Michael Mead, and myself, and a wonderful Latino poet, Luis Rodriguez, who, whose book, uh, Always Running, is a kind of chronicle of gang life. Quite amazing teachers these guys were. Um, and the young men talked some about the gang life that they were in. And they said, you know, we got no future. There's no jobs. There's nothing ahead. And, and um, we need something, but we got our homeboys. We got our buddies. And the tattoos, they all had these different tattoos. One of the tattoos for La Vida Loca, the, the crazy life, um, is a tattoo of a spider web. 
And the symbolism of the spider web is that you're caught in the spider web, but also that you weave the spider web yourself. You weave it and then you're caught in it. And once you get in the gang, you can't leave. They'll kill you if you leave. You, you're in there for life. Or you need to, and part of what this retreat talked about, you need to find a sanctuary. But it's so intense, these guys were talking about, that within a 10-block area, that's their gang, and then across that street or that one is guys wearing different colors, and they'll kill you also if you walk in the wrong territory or walk in the wrong way. And the descriptions of their life, the rituals of initiation, the things you had to do to get in the gang, the kind of almost spiritual things that connected them were all a kind of warped initiation or an incomplete one to find community, to have somebody that cared for you in the midst of death and wreckage, to find someone to protect you. Beautiful guys, Osiris and Muggsy, Arturo, Orland, this group of guys, fantastic in some ways. Um, and so we did, we did some meditation, only a little bit, I have to assure you, you know. But other kinds of teaching, mask making, uh, animal dancing, um, rituals in the wood sweat lodges led by an elder. I was up pretty late most of these nights because the rituals were four, five, eight hours long. We went out in the redwood forest and cleared this whole grove. When you have 75 or 100 men, you can actually do a lot in a short time. <laughs> Cleaned the forest floor, made this huge bonfire in the middle and two fires near it, and, a, and then draped the redwood stump, stumps with, um, with red and gold cloth that were the colors of fire and of earth. Um, and then took 500 votive candles and cut steps down into the down through the bank, down to this flowing stream. And then the men had to come, and we waited till it was late, till it was 10.30, and then we walked down this trail in the forest about a quarter of a mile to this site that had been prepared, drumming and singing this uh, prayer. Partly it was a lament for people who had died in their communities. And then you came in and you bowed, and you just sang for a long time until you were ready and then you had to sit in the middle of these three fires in this great forest and there was these guys tending the fires it was like a like a vision incredible vision um, red hot fires and stones that were for the sweat lodges and you had to sit in the middle of the three fires for as long as you could without hurting yourself until you could find a vision of your inner fire that would keep you alive and carry you out of the trouble that you were in to some new trouble you know, which is called life. But rather than seeing that you were going to die at age 20, maybe you could live beyond that. And when you came out, there was a, two men standing there, two of these really big guys that asked you to tell them what you had found. And then you went in the sweat lodge, this hot sweat lodge, and made your prayers that it might come true, and then were escorted out and plunged underneath the water in this, down these candlelit steps into this dark pool in the stream. Meanwhile, the drumming and singing is going on, you know, and basically, it was a ritual initiation village, and we did this over a succession of nights for a long time. And by the end of it, people were telling a lot of truth to one another about how hard it had been. And I think the most beautiful sight, it's a funny thing to say, I mean, the sight in the woods was, was exquisite, and, you know, the young man and the kind of anger that came out, tremendous rage at what had been done in their communities and what was missing. But one of the most beautiful sights 
was on the last last day and last full day at lunchtime where food was served these tables outside in the redwood grove and the dessert had some fruit there was grapes that were served and they started a food fight just with the grapes there was this grape fight going back and forth and these guys who'd come in wearing their hats and you know all their gang stuff became kids again and played and it was the most beautiful thing because they'd been robbed of their childhood and this it meant that this was a safe enough place for them probably the first safe place in some ways in years and years they could just let go and they were standing up and laughing telling jokes and spouting poetry the poetry was beautiful we talked a lot about protection because in these rituals we said a lot of prayers and the thing that the young men said is, who's going to protect us when we go back? Where do we get protection if it's not from our guns and from our guys, from our homeboys? So we did a lot of prayers to Mayan gods and African gods and to the Buddhas of all the threefold universes and to the ancestors, you know, and to Celtic gods and to you name it. I mean, we were looking for protection in every direction. <laughs> basically. And it was very serious. You know, it sounds like, well, whistling in the dark and making up gods and goddesses in the forest, and you think this is just wishing. I would say it's the opposite. It's the notion of our separateness that is preposterous. You think that you're not held by this world? You think there isn't some great force of life that moves through you? Butterflies count in days, yet have time enough. They, too, are held on the winds. We're all held by that same life. We live in what used to be, in California, the Wild West. You know, and independence is the game here. Come out and be a cowboy or cowgirl or whatever it is. From the Tao it said, Wheat relies on the rain. A sail relies on the wind. And I, a merchant, rely on the customers. We rely on everyone else. It's how it works. You enter the sweat lodge and you bow and you say, all my relations, which is all of you are my relations. And all of you beyond are my relations. We rest within one another. And in the practice of awareness, the depth of meditation, what the Buddha discovered, what we can discover, is a freedom and compassion in the midst of all of this. Not an escape from this life, not an escape even from its sorrows, but the possibility of a freedom of heart and compassion in the midst of this life that we share. And this freedom comes not by possession, how much I can get, not by accumulation, as uh, old proverb says, um, poverty is not the absence of goods, but the overabundance of desire.
livelihood speaks to how we enter that work and live in it, and whether we can bring to that which we do a sense of the sacred, of our connectedness, whether that quality of dignity and mindfulness and presence can be there in that which we offer to others. Can it be a blessing? Can we offer forgiveness? Can the divine shine through it? Because otherwise we have, you know, what Wendell Berry calls the tournament of capitalism that, that's trying to decide which is the world's champion corporation, right? Or the notion of the food system, which has the following principles, that food is impo important mainly as an article of international trade. It doesn't matter what happens to farmers. It doesn't matter what happens to land. Agriculture has nothing to do with the environment. There will always be plenty of food, for if farmers don't grow it from the soil, then scientists will invent it. There's no connection between food and health. People are fed by the food industry, which pays no attention to health, and are healed by the health industry, which pays no attention to food. <laughs> it follows that there's no connection then between healing and health. Hospitals customarily feed their patients Should I do um, yoga? What kind of practices? He said, love people. Well, what else should I do? Isn't there some other practice? <laughs> feed people. Love people and feed people. That was his answer. In order to be happy, which takes great courage in this world, and that's the happiness that sees also the shadow and the sorrow and the injustice. But in order to be happy in the midst of that, it is not so much making the world perfect or putting the world in order, but putting our heart in order so that we can move through this world in its difficulties and its beauty and recognize them and be connected to them and not to the future or the past or someplace we're going. One of my favorite stories in this books, Soul Food, or Stories of the Spirit, is one that I got from uh, the writings of the governor of the state of Massachusetts, Foster Furcolow. And it tells the story as the governor that he was on a blustery winter, February, Boston morning, and traffic was tied up in the snow, and drivers were glaring at one another. Everyone was unhappy but my cab driver. You don't seem to be upset that we're not moving, I said. Nope, he said very calmly, we can't go anyplace. What's the use of getting excited? I looked at him a little bit. He said, you, ever, you play golf? I said, yeah, but I'm not very good. Ever get to the tee and find two foursomes along the fairway waiting, and another one at the next tee? Lots.
the second floor of a modern hospital, but you would never know it. The Plane Tree Hospital does not feel or look like a normal one. Classical music plays softly in the background. Patients wear their own robes and pajamas, sleep on flowered sheets, and are encouraged to sleep in as long as they like. They're not disturbed during the night. There's no nurse's station. It's been replaced by a convenient study area where patients are encouraged to read their own charts and write in them what is happening for them. There are no visiting hours. Friends and family are welcome at all times convenient for the patients. There's a nearby kitchen. Family members are able to cook for their ailing loved ones and are trained to be active care partners as well. Once patients get a taste of the Plain Tree Hospitals, they simply won't permit themselves to be admitted anywhere else if they can help it. It's not so obvious, isn't it? Imagine. And it's that quality of care which comes from our true nature that remembers that it's not the accumulation or the getting somewhere else, but the freedom is in this moment and the attention that we bring to it. Each moment we are included in a greater whole. George Washington Carver, how far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday in life you will have been all of these. I think it's really beautiful to celebrate Labor Day, to think of all that allows our life to live, and to see that each day we offer things through our words and our deeds and our heart that sustain others in the simplest ways. We are the village. I read a couple of things to end. This is again from Wendell Berry about healing. The grace that is the health of creatures can only be held in common. In healing, the scattered members come together. In health, the flesh is graced and the holy enters the world. The task of healing is to respect oneself as a creature, no more and no less. To be creative is only to have health to keep oneself fully alive in the creation and creation fully alive in oneself. To see the creation anew is to welcome one's own part in it every day anew, to welcome it. The most creative works are all strategies of this health. Works of pride by self-called creators with premium on originality reduce this incredible creation to novelty, the faint surprises of minds incapable of wonder at what already exists. Pursuing originality, the would-be creator works alone. In loneliness, one assumes a responsibility for oneself that can never be fulfilled. Novelty, originality, is a new kind of loneliness. There is the bad work of pride and also the bad work of despair done poorly out of failure of hope or vision. 
the shoddy work of despair and the pointless work of pride equally betray creation. They are wastes of precious moments. Good work finds that way between pride and despair. It graces with health. It heals with grace. By it, we lose loneliness. We enter the little circle of each other's arms. We clasp the hands of those who went before us and the hands of those who come after us. And the larger circle of lovers whose hands are joined in this dance. And the larger circle of all creatures passing in and out of life who move also in a dance to a music so subtle and vast that no ear hears it except in stillness. So much better when I don't talk and you can hear the crickets. (laughs) I like it anyway. My teacher in India said the problem with you is not your desire, but that you don't desire enough. You should want it all, all the gold of the world, all the beauty of the world. And the only place you can have it is in that fullness in each moment. It's only here. Let's sit for a moment. We rest on all that has come before us. Our ancestors of so many kinds. May they hold us in their blessings. And we too will become the ancestors of those who follow us. May we offer them our full beauty. And a life of attention, deep respect. May we offer them the wisdom of our heart. 
my favorite example in my own imagination of this spirit of wise livelihood is one of the toll takers on the Golden Gate Bridge who I see periodically who welcomes people thousands of people every day as they come through her booth you know in the most amazing way it's like the city of St. Francis has you know St. Francis there taking money and welcome you into the city it's fantastic the Buddha on the other side of the bridge And my daughter, who insists every time we go through the toll booth that we pay for the car behind us and then go slow so she can watch their faces, you know, it gives her the greatest pleasure. Especially, she says, come on, Daddy, get in front of that car with that old guy over there who looks so angry and depressed. Let's see what happens to him, you know. Or that guy in the suit on his way to work in that fancy car. Get in front of that Mercedes. Okay. Get in front. Pay for the car behind us, please, and then slow down. And she's looking back. And they don't understand it at first. And then somebody, and they look over, and she's there grinning and waving. <laughs> oh, makes the day. I have a few more announcements that I've been asked to make, very brief ones, and then we'll do a little chant and end. Um... One is uh, that there is a benefit to protect the Headwaters Grove um, in Mill Valley on Saturday, September 20th of music and gourmet food and so forth. Um, that uh, There's a flyer up here for it. Um, um, so for anyone's interested in the benefit for Headwaters Forest, um, there is a, about to be a launch of um, the Cassini... Um, satellite, which unfortunately um, holds 73 pounds of radioactive plutonium to work all to give as an energy source for all the electrical systems. And some people think that it's kind of a bad idea to send rockets up that sometimes don't get all the way up there carrying that huge amount of plutonium over our oceans. So there's going to be a vigil on Gandhi's birthday on the 2nd of October and other things to uh, let the government know that maybe they could look for some other power source besides sending radioactive material circling the earth and our rockets. Um, information about that up here for those who want. And, um, two more brief announcements. On Sunday the 28th of uh, September, that weekend I'm also down at Mount Madonna teaching. Sunday the 28th, um, in Boulder Creek at the Tangpulu Monastery will be Abhidhamma, or Buddhist Psychology Day, and there'll be 50 monks coming and chanting from the texts of Buddhist psychology and teaching them. And if you're interested, you can get information about that at the back table, or about volunteering at Spirit Rock, or all kinds of other things. And the last is a letter from a dear friend whose son, oh, not whose son, um, the son of... Uh, of a community member, one of her dear friends, who is 11, um, has cancer and is needing a bone marrow transplant um, and asking for prayers for him um, and for everyone that you would pray for this evening. Um, so let's do a little bit of a chant. Mm. And the chant is this simple word in Sanskrit, 
or Pali that is Namo. Namo, in India you bow when you meet someone and you say Namaste, I honor the divine within you. Namo is the root of that word and the first word of every main Buddhist text it is I bow to, I pay respects. Let us pay respects to those that we sit with in this room, to our families, to those who are in need of prayers or blessings, to our ancestors and to those who come after us. As we chant Namo, you could sit in your heart as if you could bow to in all the directions um, and rest in the middle of them. Namo with harmony. back to the streets in the world. It's time, I guess, huh? It's great. Even in an eternal moment, there's time that comes in. I'll see you next week. Thank you very, very much. And the young men who came that week, they ended just smiling like you are. It was quite wonderful to see. So... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.